I wonder if you have ever pondered, if you have ever considered what it would be like to meet God. Ever thought about that? What it would be like to meet God? Would it be like meeting your favorite performer or your favorite athlete? You know, standing there courtside or maybe next to the stage as they come out and you're clapping your hands and you're excited to see them and maybe as they approach you, throw out your hand and they smile and nod and give you a little high five as they go? Would it be something like that? Maybe in that moment you're able to grab a quick selfie, a little picture with them. You vow never to wash your hand again. You're elated, starstruck. Is that what it would be like to meet God? Or maybe you think meeting God would be a little more like meeting Santa Claus. He's perfectly harmless. He's a happy soul, amiable, affable, full of fun and, and laughs. Such a meeting would certainly be pleasant. It would even be enjoyable, maybe kind of like as a kid going to see the grandparents. Just maybe not the most memorable experience of your life. But maybe as you think about meeting God, maybe you consider a different scene. Maybe you think it would be like walking into the chambers of some great philosopher. You relax into that plush leather chair and there with this philosopher over maybe a Perrier and the crackling of a fire, you talk about life's big questions, right? You try to solve all of the great geopolitical dramas of the world, right? Who really shot JFK? Was it the CIA, right? These are the things you might think about and talk about, the kind of burning questions you would have on your mind. Maybe that's what you might think like to meet God. Or, you know, maybe you've come this morning and you really haven't given that question much thought at all. You figure, yeah, you know what, maybe I'll deal with it later if such a time even comes. And that's about as much as you ever give to that consideration. Well, friends, what would it be like to meet God? That's what I want us to be thinking about this morning as we turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Let me invite you to turn there now. Uh, and as you do, if you are just joining us, uh, you've, come, you've come into an 11-week study through this book of Isaiah, through Isaiah. And it is a beast of a book. You can think of Isaiah somewhat like sort of the Romans of the Old Testament. It is sweeping in its size and in its scope. It covers not only what God is doing among his people, but what God is actually doing among the nations and what he's actually doing across history. And in that, Isaiah really pulls back the curtain upon what God is doing in the world. And in it, you'll find just about every major theme of the Bible, which is one of the reasons why I think outside the Psalms, the book of Isaiah is quoted more than any other book in the Old Testament. So you go to the New Testament, it's quoted more than any other book outside the Psalms. And as we saw in chapters 1 to 5 last week, one of the things we witnessed really was the rebellion of God's people, the rebellion of God's people as they rejected his word, right, as they as they flaunted his law, and that right there raises one of the key questions of the book, and really one of the key questions as we come to the Bible itself, namely, how can a rebellious people be restored to a righteous God? Now, you could have come here this morning with a whole host of questions on your mind, but I'd like to appeal to you that that question right there is in fact the most important question. It is the question you may not be asking, but it is the question you must be asking. How can a rebellious people be restored by the righteous God? And after the first five chapters of Isaiah, right, the, the tensions are rising, and yet there's no clear resolution to that question. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 6 which alongside Isaiah 53, perhaps, would be the most well-known chapter in all of the book. So with that, let's go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 6. I die. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, if you've been a Christian for some time, maybe you grew up in Christian circles, you may know this chapter for different reasons. So if you've come from a more sort of Reformed, historic, Protestant, Baptist, or maybe Presbyterian background, you may know this chapter because of verses 1 to 4. That may be your familiarity with it. Isaiah's grand and magnificent vision of God that is captured so beautifully in books like R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. So if you have not read that book, you are in for a treat. We're going to have some copies next week at the bookstall. You can buy one, or if you don't want to wait, you can go ahead and order one this week. Read Isaiah 6 again, then go order the book, read it, you'll be encouraged. Okay, so you may know it from verses 1 to 4, but if you've come out of more modern, missionary-minded, evangelical churches, you might know this chapter actually for verses 8 and 9. Right, Isaiah's famous, here I am, send me, those verses that have become a kind of clarion call for missions today. I know that's how I was first introduced to Isaiah chapter 6. And yet, interestingly, it's actually verses 9 to 10. These seemingly enigmatic verses about deafening and blinding and hardening, it's actually these verses that the New Testament quotes more than any other passage in all of Isaiah, including anything out of Isaiah 53. So right there, the section of this chapter that we like to avoid, the section of this chapter that we tend to skip over, maybe with some embarrassment, is actually the section the New Testament chooses to shine a spotlight on. Jesus in all four Gospels, Acts 28, Romans 11, all highlight verses 9 and 10. And so friends, as we walk through this chapter together, I want us to, to really learn, see four things, and these four things are going to sort of serve as our outline this morning. So first, I want us to learn something about God. That's verses 1 to 4. Learn something about God. This is a complex outline, all right? Get ready. Second, we're going to learn something about us. That's verse 5, something about us. And then third, we'll learn something about God's response to us. That's verses 6 and 7, something about God's response to us. And then lastly, fourth, 
something then about our response to God, verses 8 to 13, our response to God. So, right, something about God, verses 1 to 4, something about us, verse 5, something about God's response to us, verses 6 and 7, and something about our response to God. And as we study this text together, I hope what you'll begin to see is something of the gospel in miniature. For though this experience is unique to Isaiah, and there are certain historical particulars that are going to be certainly unique to Israel, this chapter is nonetheless, right, it's paradigmatic. It's a, it's a kind of pattern, it's a kind of model that serves for all of God's people. So first, let's dive in. Verses 1 to 4, we learn something about God. All right, something about God. And the opening verse really roots this vision in history because we we read right out of the gate, it's the year that King Uzziah died. So it's roughly 740 B.C., right? King Uzziah came to power when he was 16 years old, ruled about 52 years. And during that time, Uzziah conquered Judah's enemies, consolidated her borders, enhanced all of her fortifications, right? expanded her trade, embarked on all these ambitious public works projects. So during these years, banks were bursting, bars were hopping. Think like the Roaring Twenties, but for half a century. And you have a sense of what Isaiah well, really what the, the years of Uzziah, rather, those years of Uzziah were like. And throughout much of his early reign, and you can go read about it, for example, in Second Chronicles 26, throughout much of that reign, Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet, tragically, we learn toward the end of his life that all that wealth and all that prosperity and all that success, well, it went to his head. And in his pride, the Lord struck him with leprosy. And so he died as a leper, died separated from God and the people. Friends, there are many sobering lessons we can just right here learn about the the life of of Uzziah. But let me just encourage you to go back. Those equipping classes we have, John Henderson was doing the Hearts of the Kings. He actually did one on the life of Uzziah. You can find it back March 21st online. Go back sometime, maybe today this week. You can listen to that. But Uzziah becomes there a fitting picture for the nation of Judah, right? For the southern kingdom. They are wealthy, they are proud, they are self-sufficient, and they are therefore in spiritual shambles. And Uzziah is now dead, but notice God is alive. He is alive. So in the year that King Uzziah would die, Isaiah would now behold the true king, the only king, a glorious and terrifying king before whom all others are puppets and pawns and pretenders. And that's what we're starting to see already in these verses. Verse 1, the Lord, Isaiah saw, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So his throne right there is highlighting his kingship. The fact that it's high, that it is lifted up, reveals that this isn't just any king, right? This is the exalted king. There is none higher. There is none greater. No king that surpasses or exceeds this king. The fact that the train of his robe, we read, fills the temple, speaks really to the universality of God's own rule, how it encompasses all things, meaning nothing escapes him. Nothing lies outside of God's own jurisdiction. There are no rogue molecules, no rogue planets, no rogue people operating as their own individual sovereigns in the universe, no places where God's own authority and sovereignty doesn't reach and doesn't reign supreme. And then, of course, there are the heavenly attendants, right? The seraphim that we read about, whose names literally mean the burning ones. Now, maybe these are the same creatures you read about later in Revelation 4, 8. Not sure, possible. But these guys, just alone, they would be terrifying to behold. Right? In any other scene, the seraphim, they would dominate the picture. They would steal our attention, but not here. Not before the king pictured here. For his rule is so glorious, it is so magnificent, so otherworldly that we read the seraphim, they cover their eyes and their feet in submission as they fly and cry out, holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And friends, at that, the entrance to the temple shook. The shaking there, just a common reaction to the presence of the Lord. The the temple shook and it was filled with smoke. And friends, all of that, right? The dreadful sights, the smell of the smoke, that would have been overwhelming alone for Isaiah. Something that you couldn't capture in any poem by by Dickinson or by Yeats. You can't capture it right in a film by James Cameron or Michael Bay. Like you can't grab the solemnity of this scene. But notice it's not just what Isaiah sees, it's what he hears that arrests him, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is the cry that is ringing, the declaration that that resounds in his ears, that same declaration that rocks the earth and causes it to shake. Now in Hebrew, whenever you want to emphasize something, whenever you want to make it a superlative, like the greatest thing, what you do is you double it. So in 2 Kings 25, there'll be this expression, gold, gold, which is just the Hebrew way of saying it was like solid gold, pure gold, the best gold, right? It was gold, gold. Well, as we come to this text, God's own holiness is so great. It's so profound. It is so beyond human comprehension that a typical superlative like holy, holy, well, that just won't do. So the The seraphim, instead, they make up an expression. They create a superlative of superlatives in order just to attempt to describe the holiness of this God. Only once in all of sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to this kind of third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God, is it mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says God is holy Holy, holy. And thus right there, perhaps we come to one of the most essential attributes of God, his holiness. And that word there speaks to, to God's perfection and his distinction. So it's really highlighting both of those things, his perfection and his distinction. Perfection in the sense of his ethical and his moral purity. Right? There's no contamination in this God. There's no imperfection in this God. He is perfectly just and he is perfectly right in his being and in all of his behavior. There is no hint of corruption. There is no shadow. There is no dark side to this God. There is nothing but this blinding and radiant purity. And he's distinct in the sense that he's utterly different. He is set apart from all things. So there's nothing really that can be likened to this God. Nothing that can be compared to him. He has no twin. He has no rival. He has nothing that comes close to approximating him. He is in a world of his own, which is to say he is truly transcendent. He is other than. Now friends, that right there is helping you to see just the beginning of how The Bible talks about God, sovereign over everything, none greater than him, none higher than him. He is all-powerful and all-sufficient, which means he needs no helpers. He has no need of any assistance. He plans everything, directs everything, governs everything, guides everything because he has no peers. And he has no equals. He didn't create us because he is lonely. He doesn't save us because he's needy. You can't manipulate with this God. You can't bargain with this God. Because he lacks nothing. He needs nothing. At his voice, all of creation leaps to attention. And in his presence, everything bows in obeisance. That is the God of the Bible. That's the God that Isaiah encounters. Friend, I wonder if that begins to at all describe your own view of God. It's unapologetically the Bible's view. And just consider for a moment what the alternative might be. You know, a God who who can't always get his way, a God whose hands are somewhat tied, a God who occasionally needs to rest. A God who can be overwhelmed, overpowered, outsmarted, outmatched. 
A God who might make promises but can't finally fulfill them. A God who isn't perfectly good. A God whose word can't perfectly be trusted. A God who's needy, even a bit petty when it comes to his creatures. Friend, do you know what kind of God I've just described? I've described much of how the Bible talks about Satan. That's not at all how the Bible talks about God. There are lots of competing ideas out there. You ask people on the street, you go over to the campus, what is God like? And there are lots of counterfeits posing as the real thing. But if God is not sovereign, and if God is not thrice holy, then he is not God. Not according to Isaiah 6. So what have we learned about him? Well, he is terrifyingly and gloriously majestic in holiness. Friend, do you know this God of the Scriptures? Maybe even more importantly, are you prepared to meet this God? We're going to see Isaiah. Isaiah wasn't quite prepared. Isaiah wasn't quite ready. And friends, that brings us to our second point. Right? So we've learned something about God. We, we also, secondly, want to learn something about us. Something about us. Because before this God, Isaiah cries out, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So notice in Isaiah, this vision of God does not produce rapture. It produces utter terror in him. So Isaiah in verse 5 knows he's not celebrating. He's not throwing a party like he has just won the lottery. He's not lost in some paroxysm of praise. Right? He's not in that kind of a fit. Instead, not at all. He's terrified. He's terrified because to come into the presence of this holy God, now Isaiah knows as he's been brought into it, he's toast. He is a goner. He says, I am lost. Utterly lost, he will say. Friends, there is nothing informal. There is nothing relaxed about entering into the presence of this God. Isaiah understands, and we would do well to learn from him. You don't just saunter into the presence of a God like this. You know, I think one of the things Christians, not always, but often have sadly lost is we've lost any sense and any notion of God's transcendence, of God's majesty. We've so domesticated God. We've so demoted God. We've so neutered him. So may God look like us, frankly, that we barely even recognize him. We could pass by many of the things that pass as God in the world. We could pass by that God in the street, and we wouldn't even turn around. We wouldn't even attempt a conversation. We wouldn't even care. And if you're visiting, you know, one of the reasons why we actually structure the services as we do, and one of the reasons why we do so is because we understand how this God reveals himself in Scripture. So you may find instead of this gathering being as casual as you expected, you may find a gathering like this a little more structured, and maybe even may I use that dreaded word formal. Oh, no. You may find it a bit like that. Or instead of being lighthearted and relaxed, you may find our gatherings, comparatively speaking, maybe a, a bit more weighty. You may find what we're doing here a bit more serious, maybe even sobering. You know, this summer on sabbatical, I think I noted uh, two Sunday nights ago, I was able to visit many other churches, both here when I was back in California. And after visiting them, I was again struck how odd our service must be to some who come from other churches. Now, if you are non-Christian, I think the average non-Christian comes, and I don't actually think they're that surprised. Non-Christians aren't terribly surprised when Christians read the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, and then hear a sermon on it. I don't think that's a great surprise to them. But if you're coming from another church context, this can seem strange, right? These longer readings of Scripture, the prayers of praise and confession, Right, These moments of silence when we prepare our hearts, like, what is that? It's easy to wonder. Even the songs feel a bit thicker and a bit heavier. And then there are the lights. It's all bright, right? Friends, recognize all of that is not accidental. 
That is intentional because it is meant to teach us something about God. Something about who he is. And to prepare us to meet this God of the Bible. You know, the sun will burn your eyes out. It'll literally torch them from 92 million miles away. And yet so many of us expect to casually stroll into the presence of our creator like it is no big deal. The Bible says it's a really big deal. Isaiah knows it because, again, he says, I'm lost. And just to be clear, by that he doesn't mean he needs a map and some directions. It means he's ruined. He is undone, to use that old language of the King James Bible. Why is that? Because he says, I have unclean lips, which doesn't mean he's got sort of food left on his mouth. It's a biblical way of saying he is a sinner. He is contaminated by sin. And friends, that might surprise us because we might expect Isaiah to have the cleanest lips amongst all the Israelites, everyone in Jerusalem. You know, heading off to college, I remember thinking I was a pretty good water polo player. I thought I was. That is until one afternoon before I headed off for college, I got in the pool with my brother-in-law. So Aaron's older brother, one of her older brothers, about six years older than me, and he played on the U.S. national team. All right, so just, just picture J.J. Watt. So if you know football, defensive end, J.J. Watt, jacked. Picture J.J. Watt, but imagine he can swim like Michael Phelps. And you have some understanding of what I had before me in the water. So if you've seen planet Earth, you know, and those killer whales, you know what they do with the seals? They just grab them, like toss them. 80 feet into the sea. Yeah, that was kind of my experience, right? I was just a rag doll before this beast before me. And I thought I was impressive, but it took me standing, or in this case, like drowning in the presence of someone considerably more impressive than me that I realized actually I'm not that impressive, I'm not that gifted, I am mediocre at best. Friends, that is what it is like when we come in the presence of a God. Just a pale comparison of what it will be like. We might think we're actually doing okay. We might even think we're morally pretty good. But in the presence of God, we are exposed. We are not good. We are anything but good. And in that moment, there's no bravado. There's no justifications. There's no pointing the finger. There's no rationalizations for our sin. Isaiah would have been likely comparatively holy, really holy compared to the rest of Israel around him. But when measured before the holiness of God, he understands he doesn't stand a chance. And neither do we. Isaiah saw but his train and that throne, and Isaiah was petrified. He knew he was going to die. Because of his sin, Isaiah knew he deserved to die. And so do we. In fact, it's actually that instinct to immediately acknowledge and to confess sin that is itself an indication that we have actually come to know this God. That instinct to immediately confess sin, to recognize ourselves for who we are, that's actually, that's the indication, that's the hint, that's the clue that we actually understand and know and have experienced this God. So if you think about Paul's ministry, you know, it's interesting, early in his ministry, he will speak of himself as the least of the apostles. But, you know, hey, he's still an apostle. A little later in his ministry, he'll say, you know what, I'm the least of all the saints. Ah, but he still considered himself a saint, like, which just means a believer. Toward the end of his ministry, you know what he calls himself? The chief of sinners. He was a man who the more he came to know the Lord, the more seriously he took his sin. So the, the old Puritan John Flavel would write, you know, when the corn is nearly ripe, I'm not into agricultural analogies, but I know we have some right here. The corn is nearly ripe, it bows the head and stoops lower than it was when green. So too, when the people of God are ripe for heaven, they grow more humble and self-denying. That's what Isaiah understood. Isaiah's confession reveals 
that not only is he a sinner, friends, all of us are sinners. All of us stand condemned. We don't stand in judgment of this God. No, this God stands over us and in judgment of us. But is that it? Right? God in his holiness, man in his sinfulness. Is that the end of the story? Thankfully, no. Thirdly, we see something about God's response to us. Something about God's response to us. Because it's just when it looks most bleak for Isaiah that we read in verse 6, right, that a seraphim flies to Isaiah with a burning coal taken from the altar, flies and in that altar, likely, right, that burning coal is coming from, from an altar there in the temple where sacrifices were made. So right there, that coal, that altar is signifying the, the provision that God makes for the forgiveness of sin. And we read in verse 7 that with that, with that burning coal, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Right In that moment, with that coal, Isaiah's guilt, that guilt has been removed. That sin has been atoned, as in it has been paid for. And in that moment, Isaiah, he's, he's cleansed. He's purified, as we sang earlier, made white and justified. That's what's happening right here in these verses. And in that moment, we learn, right there, we learn so much about the amazing grace of God. When Isaiah most deserved justice, it's when he received the greatest mercy. But I want us to note specifically some things these verses are teaching us because for starters, we have to recognize that, that we can only survive in the presence of God. We can only speak to live and tell of that day if our guilt has been removed and if our sins have been atoned for. So if you are one who still is tempted to think you, you can stroll casually into the presence of this God and still live to speak of that day, let these verses disabuse you. You cannot, you will not. You must be cleansed of your guilt. Friend, it would be a little bit like, you know, there's these horrible documentaries of like Chernobyl and the rest, right? These nuclear reactors that go bad. Imagine just trying to walk and waltz into one of those with no suit, no protection at all. Friend, that would not end well. And yet somehow we think we can just waltz into the presence of God and somehow expect that's going to go well with his purifying holiness. Atonement must be made, which means your most significant problem with God this morning it's not why seemingly bad things happen to seemingly good people. Recognize that only happened once, and he volunteered. No, your most significant problem with God, it's not your physical limitations. It's not your financial frustrations this morning. Your most significant problem with God is not the body he gave you. It's not the spouse he gave you or didn't give you. It's not the parents he gave you. It's not the lack of resources and talents that you have. Your most significant problem with God this morning is your sin. What will you do with your sin? Isaiah is saying it must be atoned for. But notice, Isaiah can't do it. We can't do it. Notice the Lord himself has to provide the sacrifice. The Lord himself must do it. You know, every religion basically works off the very same arithmetic. Work off your bad deeds with good deeds. Pretty much how it flows. But the Bible says, you know what? Just imagine for a moment all of your sins are written upon a scroll and if you were to lay that scroll out, it would go right out through these back doors, right out through the foyer, down Maple Street, and it would just keep going across the west, through the deserts, over the Rockies, across the Pacific, right? It would just keep going. 
And maybe some of your scrolls would be a little bit longer than others, but the reality is they would all be unsufferably long. And imagine that I just said, okay, now with that in mind, here's a pencil. And on the top of that pencil, there's a tiny little eraser. And now I want you to get to work and try to erase those sins. And oh, by the way, they're written with a Sharpie. Friend, you could rub until you are exhausted. You would certainly rub until that tiny little eraser was gone and you wouldn't get the slightest hint of fade in the first letter. You simply can't do it. But that's the hope, apparently, that religion offers out to you. With all of those good deeds, you can somehow wipe away and erase all of the bad ones. Friends, that is not the message of Christianity which is why God alone, he knows, God alone must do it. He alone must provide the way. He alone must take the initiative. For what contribution at this point has Isaiah made? He has made none. He's cried out in terror, that's it. He's made no other contribution, nothing but the recognition that he is a sinner who stands condemned. God must provide the sacrifice, and he must apply even that sacrifice to us. He doesn't point to it and say, now go get it. He brings it and applies it all the way. Salvation is his work from beginning to end. And that right there ought to even further amaze us, that Isaiah isn't initially struck down, and that then, at this point, he receives such amazing grace That should astound us. We could spend every waking minute for the rest of our life pondering it, and we still wouldn't come close to exhausting the glories of it. And yet the reality is, sadly, that doesn't really amaze us. You know, I love what R.C. Sproul said there in The Holiness of God, reflecting on these verses. He says, I think if many people are honest with themselves, we're not really surprised God has redeemed us. Somewhere deep inside, in the secret chambers of our hearts, we harbor the notion that God owes us his mercy. Heaven would not be quite the same if we were excluded from it. We know that we're sinners, but we are surely not as bad as we could be. There are enough redeeming features to our personalities that if God is really just... He will include us in salvation. What amazes us is justice, not grace. Friends, and it's right there. When he has just put his finger on your own heart, it is right there why God must save us. Why he must save us. Because he has just revealed right there the rots in our own heart, the rot in it. And praise God that he still chooses to save. Because he has provided that sacrifice that we need. You know, there on a Roman cross, some 2,000 years ago, a sinless man hung as a sacrifice. He hung on that altar that God had established. And he hung not for any sins that he had committed. Instead, he hung on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He atoned for sin. And on that altar, he died the death we deserve so that in him we could find the life that we don't deserve, but he nonetheless gives everlasting And then there in his resurrection, right, what did God declare? Sins paid in full. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, Paul says, referring to Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Right, there's nothing more for us to do. There's nothing for us to add other than to joyfully repent of our sins and respond in obedient faith. Friend, have you done that? Have you repented of your sins and responded to this God in obedient faith? 
you know, you can do that actually right now. You can do that where you sit. Another person can't do it for you. You don't come to some pastor or priest to do it for you. Actually, you must do that. And there's not some magical prayer or incantation that you are to offer up to God. Go to God, Jesus says, and repent of your sins and believe in him. It is that simple. That is what God calls you to. This is the grace he holds out to you. Or friend, are you willing to, to take your chances this morning? Will you seek to perhaps stroll one day into God's presence without that protective suit, without the protective covering of Christ's blood? Are you going to leave here and take that chance? You know, we've considered something about God, something about God and his holiness, man and his sinfulness, what God provides, his response to us and his sacrifice. And lastly, we want to think a little bit more about this response we're to have to God forth something about our response to God. Because at the point of Isaiah's own redemption, notice how everything changes. Whereas before, Isaiah cowered in fear before the voice of God, now he's going to respond with courageous obedience. Right? For God will say, look down to verse 8, God will say, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? In Isaiah now, he blurts out, here I am, send me. Now, a few of you careful readers have noted and reached out to me this week, and you're like, hey, why did God not say, who will go for me? That's what we might expect God to say. God's talking, who's going to go for me? But instead, he says, who will go for us? Who's this us God is now referring to? And some of you wondered, is God here referring perhaps to the Trinity? Is this some veiled reference to the Trinity? Well, I actually think it probably is, just to answer those questions, in part because you know that reading from John earlier? that Claire read for us, there in John 12, 41, we read that Isaiah said these things because he saw his, referring to Christ, his glory, and spoke of him, Christ. So there, the Gospel of John relates this vision to something that Christ was a part of. So not only God the Father was present, God the Son, and then Acts 28, 25 connects this same vision here to to the, to the vision of the Holy Spirit, to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So the New Testament right there, connecting some of these Trinitarian dots, that's probably who the us is. But friends, I just want to see even a more basic point. We can only truly obey God once we've been saved by God. You can only truly obey God once you've been saved by God. Because the logic of the Bible is that since no one has a perfect heart, no one can do a perfect deed which means none of us can truly and genuinely obey God until we have been saved by him and given our life over to him. Otherwise, those good deeds are not truly good because they're not finally done exclusively and solely in the service of him, but in the service of someone or something else. And notice that the, the test of this faith, the genuineness of it, is the willingness to obey God wherever it leads. So often our instinct as Christians is to say, sure, God, I will obey you. Just give me a little hint. Like, show me a few pages into how this chapter is going to roll so I can make sure I really want to follow down this path. We want him to tip his hand. We want things to go our way. We want to see how it might benefit me. Notice Isaiah. Perhaps Isaiah, at this point, given what he has just experienced, maybe Isaiah's thinking, you know what, how exciting this is going to be. God's people, right? We just taught five chapters how badly they need renewal. Oh, I've just experienced this renewal. I know how they can experience this renewal. I'm going to come. I'm going to preach this message. They're going to flock to me. They're going to come to me in droves. You know, I might even be the keynote speaker at some of those big conferences coming. I bet you I can ink a big book deal. Like things are looking up. Isaiah might have been dreaming of a very successful ministry at this point. And so often, when we're saved, we too can expect from there on out life to go swimmingly, right? It'd go wonderfully and well, life as we dreamed it to be. But if there were any hopes that lingered, they were dashed there right out of the gate in verse 9. When the message he is to share and to preach is keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull 
and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This seems like the oddest and perhaps the strangest commission a prophet of God could be given. And to be clear, God is not saying, Isaiah, go up into a pulpit and speak a bunch of gibberish. Whatever you do, just make it super confusing. That's actually not what God was saying here. And we know this because later in Isaiah 28, sort of the, the sages of the time, right, the sophisticates and philosophers, they're going to they're gonna mock Isaiah for speaking at a kindergarten level. Kind of like they mock Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 for speaking so plainly. They're going to mock him for his plain speech. And it was very clear what Isaiah spoke. It seems the purpose of Isaiah's message that he's given, it's actually not the people's salvation. It seems the purpose of this message was to bring about their judgment. We sang earlier, God moves in a mysterious way. We see him here even moving in a mysterious way. And we're left scratching our head, but wait a minute, 1 Timothy 2, doesn't God desire all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? How do we understand that in relation to what we're reading right here? Well, the answer is clearly yes, God does desire men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But we're also seeing that God, well, there are limits to God's patience. God is infinite, yes. God is gracious, yes, but it would be wrong to conclude that his patience and grace themselves are infinite. There are limits to God's patience and his forbearance. And he warns us again and again, as he warned Israel, there's going to be a time will come when the gavel will fall and I will mete out justice. Israel had rejected and hardened their hearts to the word of the Lord as we saw last week. And now, in a kind of ironic judgment, the Lord is going to further harden their hearts through the preaching of that word. So thus, the very word that was meant to save them is the very word that would blind them and condemn them. God here is promising to harden his people's hearts. What we sometimes refer to as a kind of judicial hardening as a punishment for their sin. It's exactly what God did with Pharaoh in the Exodus. It's what he did with the people of Egypt. I went through, there are over a dozen, over, over 15 references to God hardening the hearts of people right here, his own people. And notice what Isaiah at this point doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, you know, God, that sermon Why don't we file that one away? Let's just put that one aside. Actually, why don't you just go ahead and toss that sermon in the trash? That sermon's not going to fly with the people. You know, while you're at it, God, toss it in the trash. Why don't you pull out another sermon? I'm sure you got a better sermon in there for me. I'm sure there's something there that the people will like, something that's going to make them laugh, something that's going to make them feel good. You know, sadly, preachers do this all the time when they selectively choose parts of God's word that they want to preach and they ignore the difficult parts they don't want to preach. Sadly, we can do this in our own Bible reading. We become overly selective in it. Constantly, we hunt for the, that next promise verse we dream of putting on the mug, you know. We hunt for that promise verse, that feel-good verse. We skip over all the hard stuff. We can do the same thing. But Isaiah doesn't say, God, trash that sermon. Give me another one. No, instead he simply says, verse 11, how long, O Lord? How long? And you know what the answer? It's not any more encouraging. God says you're to go and you're to preach this message until the land lies in waste and the people are either destroyed or exiled, verses 11 and 12. In other words, do this until there's really no person No tree even left standing. You know, how's that for a nice promise verse to cling to? And yet that's what God called Isaiah to preach. So much for all the dreams of his own successful ministry. And yet sadly, we're going to see Israel refused to learn her lesson. Even in the days of Jesus, it's why he and Paul would call back upon this text here regularly as a reminder 
of God's judgment of his people for disregarding his word. The question, friends, is whether or not we will learn anything from this lesson. Because why, again, is this all happening in verse 6? Why are these promises coming of, of Assyria and then Babylon who will meet these things out? It's because the people hear and yet refuse to respond to the word of the Lord. That's what's gotten them here. They have heard the word of the Lord, and they have rejected it and refused it. Which means even you recognize you are responsible right now for what you do with the preaching of this word. God will hold you accountable one day to how you hear and respond or don't respond to this word. So you can mock it, you can reject it, you can ignore it. You can say, you know what, I, I got other things. Like, this is already going on too long. I got other things with my day. I'll deal with this later. You can do that. But while, remember, God is infinite, his patience is not. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, which means every time you hear his word and ignore it and harden your heart, every time you silence that conviction of the word, you are further hardening that heart. And one day you may harden that heart to a point when it will no longer listen because it can't listen. Everything hits it and bounces right off. And friend, then it will be too late, as it was for Israel. And yet all isn't without hope entirely. Because right there in the very last phrase drops this little expression that the holy seed will be present in this stump of God's tree. God is preserving a stump of a tree, and there's a holy seed, we read, present in this stump. This offspring that we'll read later in Isaiah 53 too, that will, like a root out of dry ground, it will shoot up. This same offspring from Genesis 3.15 that is to crush the head of the serpent. The same offspring that's to gather a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation the promises of Isaiah 2, 1 to 4, is going to be seen in this offspring, Jesus. Even in the midst of their rebellion, God will restore a remnant through this Redeemer's blood. So I then ask you, again, what would it be like to meet this God? I hope you see it won't be an unmemorable experience. It won't be a boring experience. You won't yawn when you meet this God. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? Alone, without protection, without redemption, Isaiah is helping us see that moment will be utterly terrifying and we will be undone. But with redemption, right, covered by the blood of the Lamb, our sins atoned for on the altar of Christ, it won't be terrifying, but it will be that entrance into life everlasting. Friend, do you know this holy God? There is not another. Again, are you prepared to meet this God? Let's pray.